we need to focus on on two angles and one angle and those have to happen in parallel so one angle is uh, we really have to curb corporate control in the global food system and the other angle would be to support alternatives like agroecology um explicitly you're listening to the chakula podcast jambo hello Welcome to another episode of the Chakula podcast. The Chakula podcast is a podcast of the Root to Food initiative and the Root to Food initiative is a program of the Irish Ball Foundation Nairobi office. We work on agroecology and pushing for the realization of the human right to food in Kenya by proposing agroecology as a means and as a solution. I'm your host Felicitas Mwalia. Today's episode we are diving into the complex and interconnected web of the global food system exploring how it's broken and how this affects countries in the global south to better understand the global food context and its impact we are delighted to have Lena Luig who happens to be my colleague she's the head of international agriculture policy division at the Henrich Ball Foundation in Berlin good to have you on the show Lena This is finally happening so perhaps the floor is all yours to share with our listeners who Lena is and what does Lena do at the Henrich Paul Foundation head office when it comes to matters of food and farming systems thank you Sure thanks so much Feli um it's an honor to be on this podcast really I'm a big fan and uh, it's wonderful to be here so thanks so much for the for the invitation um so yes my name is Lena Luig I'm working for Heinrich Böll Foundation in Berlin at headquarters um I've joined Heinrich Böll Foundation about a year ago and was working for a German development NGO uh, before that Uh, my background is actually like from Latin American studies and it was the Latin American continent that sort of um dragged me into these land conflicts issues uh, and my interest in agricultural policy grew and um yeah I've also um had more and more experiences on the on the African continent which was really really interesting um in the last couple of years and in my work um i would say i, I specialize i've been specializing on um corporate control of um food systems i've uh, done a lot of work on pesticide especially um the global or double standards in the global pesticide trade and recently started to work more on fertilizers and also soil soil health basically thank you so much lena this is finally happening to start off the conversation having worked in this space and also from reading the current state of food and nutrition security report by FAO the numbers captured specifically from the global south show a clear indication that you're not heading to the right direction and it's clear that our food system is broken also looking at who controls what from production level to consumption level we see that it's dominated by multinational corporations and this dominance has brought about unsustainable and unhealthy production and consumption patterns the system is also a major contributor to one in five deaths around the world which are associated with poor diet we also have loss of biodiversity power into a few hands inequalities high levels of poverty perhaps you could share with our listeners some of the context of the global food system yes thanks for this interesting question and as it was 
preparing for this for this show, I had to think of a paper I read recently and I found very, very helpful to understanding the global food system. Uh, it was by Jennifer Clapp. I don't know if you know her. She's uh, one of the, I think, one of the founders or a very active member of the International Panel of Experts on um, Sustainable Food Systems, IPIS Food. And uh, she has summarized this, uh, like the way how the global food system functions in a very good way, I find, uh, with regards to global grain trade. Um, so she's basically saying that there's different levels of concentration um, that characterize uh, the global food system. So firstly, um, the global or the industrial food system is based on only a small number of staple grains uh, produced mainly in an unsustainable way. So that is wheat, uh, maize and rice that make up nearly half of human diets. I think this is very interesting to start with. Um, and then secondly, uh, only a small, small number of countries um, specialize in the production of this small number of staple grains uh, for export, on which actually many other countries uh, like Kenya also depend on. Um, yeah. So, for for instance, uh, Kenya is a net importer of wheat um, and imports large quantities from from Russia and, and and Ukraine. And then, thirdly, the global grain trade, if you keep, stick to this example, is dominated by a small number of companies. Um, this is also true for the input sector, by the way, the land machine sector, and the retail sector. Um, so, just to name one example um, of the input sector, the top four pesticide companies control sixty. Two percent of the global market. And coming back to your question, so because we have this immense concentration uh, in the global food system and many agri-food companies have gone public, which means that they have to maximize their profits in order to pay out dividends to their shareholders, um, the industrial food system rather serves these shareholders' interests, I would say, than the people or the environment as well. Um, so you were also mentioning all these other problems. Uh, we have um, more than 9% of the global population that still face hunger. And of course, most of them um, are located in the global south. And also disproportionately, um, this affects women and people in rural areas. Um, and 3 billion people even cannot afford a healthy diet. Um, and you all know, probably, you listeners, that unfortunately hunger is still on the rise across um, the African continent. And then at the same time, if we look at the environmental and climate aspects, um, global food and agriculture is responsible for more than one third of greenhouse gas emissions. It's responsible for up to 70% of freshwater use and as much as 80% of biodiversity loss. Um, so all in all, really, there's a huge need for transform for transforming this industrial global food system towards a more local, more decentralized and resilient supply of healthy food that is also produced in an ecologically compatible way, I would say. Mm, that's very intense, Lena. And actually, thank you so much for breaking that down. You mentioned that top four companies control 62% of the pesticide market. And Lena, I just want us to move on to the discussion of pesticides since you also mentioned that you work on pesticides and being someone who sits at the German office and also interacting with the EU. And as Rutu Food, we published a report in September last month. And from the report... I'll actually use 
share it on the show notes in case you're interested on the report. The report is on toxic pesticides in the Kenyan market, specifically a focus on highly hazardous pesticides in the Kenyan market. So, Lena, according to a report published by us, 44% of the volume of the pesticides used in Kenya are already banned in Europe due to their unacceptable risk to human health and the environment. And also just to mention, the next episode of the Chakula podcast will dig deeper onto the topic of pesticides, specifically on highly hazardous pesticides in Kenya and where we are. But Lena, for today's conversation, I'm just curious to understand, since 44% of the total volume of pesticides used in Kenya are already banned in the EU, and as a person who sits at the HBS, basically the Heinrich Paul Foundation office in Germany, having worked on the issues of pesticides, what are some of the steps that the EU has actually taken, or what basically is the EU doing to ensure we end double standards? Yes, so... um First of all, to, to just stress again, uh, it's it's brilliant, like the, the data you've been raising and for, for, for Kenya, this is really helpful in the debate and it just shows how dramatic this issue of double standards and global pesticide trade really is. And like personally, as I said, I've been I've been fighting with many other partners, German partners um, or European partners. I've been fighting for expert bans for hazardous pesticides from Europe and specifically from, from Germany for several years now. And I can tell that many people, like normal citizens uh, I talk to in Germany and other European countries, are really shocked about these dynamics. So they can't understand why would you export um, a hazardous substance that is banned in Europe for a good reason uh, and export this to, to other countries um, outside of Europe. So, for example, there was a petition in Germany that demanded a pesticide export ban. And it was signed by uh, more than 177,000 people. Um, so that's quite a large number and quite wide support from, from a population. Um, and actually, two countries within the EU have already implemented export bans for pesticides pesticides banned in the EU. So that's France um, since beginning of last year. And now this news just came, I think, last week um, that Belgium also passed a law um, to to ban the export of banned pesticides. And we were actually very optimistic about Germany as well, um, because all progressive parties uh, like Social Democrats, Greens, and, and also the left party um, support an export ban. And two years ago, um, the new government in Germany, which is uh, composed of uh, Social Democrats, Greens, and Liberals, they announced in their coalition agreement that they would implement an expert ban for certain hazardous pesticides. So that was a really important step. However, in Germany, the industry's lobby is very, very strong. So two mm. of the three major pesticide companies um, have their headquarters, the head office in Germany, and that is Bayer, um, who bought Monsanto a few years ago, and BASF. Um, and those companies are doing heavy lobbying activities, especially towards the liberals. Um, and now we're seeing that basically the liberals are taking their position. So at the moment, really, I can I can say this is this is very this is going on now. Um, the liberals are blocking the German export ban, um, and civil society organizations are really doing their best to to keep the pressure up. And if we look at EU level, unfortunately, the industry's lobby is also really gaining support, um, especially after the Russian invasion into Ukraine. Mm -hmm. um, so the industry, the farmers associations, so the large farmers associations, and the conservative and right-wing parliamentarians um, 
they sort of formed an alliance, I would say, against all Green Deal policies. And they're claiming that we need more pesticides and more fertilizers in order to feed um, the world, basically. To yeah. be honest, I'm very pessimistic at the moment because, um, yeah, there will be EU parliament elections next year. And currently we're really seeing a, a strong shift to the right in Europe. And, and those kind of laws are really, really under attack. Yes. Just, yes. just maybe just a clarification on the export ban by mm-hmm. France and Belgium. Is it on all pesticides that have been banned in, the, in their specific countries? Um, so, so, so pesticide active ingredients are banned at EU level, and then it's the member states that can um, organize the registration of certain pesticide products. So it's this like two level process. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to the, I can only answer this in detail for the for the French um, law because the Belgium yeah. law is uh, Belgian law is so new, and I, I don't know the details actually. But for the French law, I know that um, this export ban only applies to formulated pesticide products. Um, So this is already an important step, but we definitely see um, that what we actually need would be an export ban for the pure active substances as well, because we know that for many European countries, companies would not only export um, formulated like products, pesticide products ready to sell, but they would also um, export just the active substances so that those can be formulated in other countries. Um, so this is an important thing we have to consider that we, if we want export bans, we should have export bans also for active ingredients. That's very interesting, Lena, that the conversation right now, it's all about more fertilizers and more pesticides basically as a solution to hunger and the current hunger situation and as a solution to achieve, basically as a way to achieve zero hunger. But Lena, we've been seeing large agribusinesses benefiting from some of these challenges that we've been facing when it comes to food insecurity and food security, while small-scale farmers and consumers are left vulnerable. So I just want us to have a discussion on crisis profiteering, as only four multinationals companies control over 70% of the seed and pesticide markets, and only 50 manufacturers account for 50% of global food sales, while just four Western companies dominate international agriculture trade. What does this mean for small-scale farmers, and how are these profits being generated, and what does this mean for prices and food availability? Yes, I think the pricing issue is, is very, very relevant in these food price crises um, that we are seeing, that we have been seeing before also. Um, so I would like to start with some numbers on these like crisis um, profiteering issue. So firstly, um, there was some great research done by Grain and IATP um, who looked at the profits of fertilizer industries in 2022. Um, and they found out that the top nine, the nine largest fertilizer companies had generated a profit margin of 36% in 2022. So more than a third of their sales were pure profits. This is just incredible. Um, And by the way, also in the last food price crisis in 2008-9, it was mainly fertilizer companies that were like the largest profiteers. Uh, I will come to the why later. Um, Mm -hmm. And then I also looked into the pesticide sector. Um, So for example, 
Bayer's agricultural division, it's Bayer Crop Science, um, increased its earnings by 82% um, in 2022 compared to the previous year. And they made a profit margin of, or their profit margin climbed up to 27%. And then if you look at BASF, um, the earnings of the agricultural solutions division um, were up 71% compared to the previous year. So really large increases of their profits. Um, and I would say this is like a perfect example for so-called windfall profits because they mainly stem from price spikes on the global market for these products. So like prices for pesticides went up way higher and prices uh, prices for uh, fertilizers went up way higher. Um, so if the market price is high, um, the companies just can generate more profits. And this is not because they're changing their business model or come up with new innovations or anything. It's just the prices. Um, this is this is what we know so far. There might be more research um, afterwards because this is very complex, of course, but this is what we, what we know so far. And this is what we also know from the last uh, food price crisis um, concerning the, the fertilizer issue. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting to see also that the production costs, when we look at fertilizer, the production costs uh, went up higher. Um, they increased a lot because the main ingredient for making nitrogen fertilizer is fossil gas or other fossil fuels because the, the this process, this so-called Haber-Bosch process to make ammonia is so energy intensive. Um, so you need a lot of fossil energy to make uh, to make nitrogen fertilizer, and the energy cost uh, spiked, the price spiked. Uh, but still, they were making those huge profits because the fertilizer prices also spiked. So this is like the dynamics um, of those windfall profits. And generally, I would say that in the it is the agricultural and food industry workers, as well as the consumers that are basically paying the price for these profits. Mm -hmm. um, because in general, it's important to say that, that those profits are only made possible because so far um, the industrial food systems can rely on cheap natural resources, on cheap energy, mostly fossil energy, as I said, and also cheap labor. Um, yeah, and then we could also, I could also go into detail when it comes to Germany or EU. I don't know if that's so interest if that's interesting because in in Germany, for example, um, the the retail sector is only also mm -hmm. highly concentrated. So you only have four supermarket change, uh, chains, sorry, that still control eighty five percent of the German market. Um, mm -hmm highly, highly concentrated. And there was a study recently by two competition economists um, that came to the conclusion that in Germany, about a third of the food price increases in recent years could be traced back to the market concentration in retail. So that's a lot. Um, and then across, across the EU, you see this huge food price inflation. Um, and more and more actors are sort of um, arguing that not only in the agri-food sector, but also in other sectors, um, that companies' profits are largely responsible for the inflation in Europe. So, for example, there was an analysis by the International Monetary Fund published June this year that came to the conclusion that company profits were ultimately responsible for 
45% of inflation in the Eurozone, which is a lot. Yeah. And even the president of the European Central Bank, Christine Lagarde, who's a hardcore neoliberal economist, I would say, um, she even said that company profits were responsible for as much as two-thirds of inflation in Europe in 2022. So this is not only agri-food sector. I'm just saying this is like a general correlation between companies' profits and and inflation. So it's really consumers, but also producers that are paying the price for these profits. Yeah, thank you so much, Lena. At the beginning, you had talked about that you had mentioned that 9% of the global population faces hunger, with majority coming from the global south, and also this specifically affects women. And the inequality of food access within the global food system is an important conversation to have right now. And while I was doing this research, one of the things that came out is that this is deeply ingrained in imbalance, which perpetuates... While I was doing the research, this deeply ingrained imbalance perpetuates... Uh, social and economic disparities. But from a person who understands the global food system more, how does this play out on a global scale? Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for the important question. Um, So according to to the Global Hunger Index, uh, it's an important uh, publication that is uh, launched every year in October. It was just launched uh, recently. Um, Mm -hmm. So the new data shows that 43 countries um, in the world have alarming or serious levels of hunger. And if you look at the global map, um, there are countries like uh, Syria, Yemen, North Korea, also Papua New Guinea, which I found interesting, um, and South Asian countries like India, Afghanistan, Pakistan. Um, But apart from these countries, all of the countries are on the African continent. So this is really sad um, that still like hunger is really a main issue on the African, across the African continent. And uh, on a global scale, we have to say that little progress has been made since 2015 when it comes to um, the sustainable development goal of ending hunger by 2030. This is actually the goal of the international community and we're far from that, far from achieving that. Um, So this stagnation in achieving this goal, um, I think it's due to basically combined effects of several crises we've seen in the the past year. So on the one hand, of course, there was the COVID-19 pandemic, which also um, had impacts on on supply change, on on, um, poverty, basically many people impoverished, especially in the informal sector, right? Um, Then we had the war in Ukraine with all those price spikes and energy and fertilizer that we were talking about. Um, we are seeing the impacts of climate change. Also, I guess you know way better than than myself that uh, the African continent is, um, and Kenya also is affected um, far more seriously by by climate uh, crisis than, for example, Northern Europe is. Um, and then we also see uh, armed conflicts and wars and and. I want to stress uh, rising inequalities as well. So mm-hmm. if we want to fight hunger, combat hunger, we definitely need to um, fight poverty and fight um, socioeconomic inequalities. Thank you, Lena. As we wrap up the show, Lena, it's clear that if we continue with business as usual, we won't achieve one of the SDGs at zero hunger by 2030, among others. And you had also mentioned that 43 countries in the world 
have alarming levels of hunger. This is according to the Global Hunger Index, which is also very problematic. And we have alternatives like agroecology, which hold a lot of promise when it comes to achieving zero hunger. And uh, is our hope on the work that we do specifically here in Kenya to ensure that the right to food is realized, that agroecology is embraced in Kenya, not just in Kenya, but I know even for you, Lena, on the work that you do, that you really hope that agroecology is embraced. But one of the challenges we've been facing is, yes, agroecology holds so much potential. What needs really to be considered when it comes to transitioning from an industrial way of farming to a more holistic way of farming, that's agroecology. What needs to be considered? Thank you. Yeah, I guess this is this is really a tough question. And of course, the transition is never easy. Um, mm -hmm. But I would say that we need to focus on, on two angles. And the one angle, and those have to happen in parallel. So one angle is uh, we really have to curb corporate control in the global food system. And the other angle would be to support alternatives like agroecology um, explicitly. So talking about the first thing, how do we curb corporate control? Um, I guess there are a number of, of, of measures that really um, need to be taken seriously by, by international community, but also by, by governments across, uh, across the world. Um, so one thing would be fair taxation. And, and as I was talking about windfall profit, we should also consider windfall profit tax, for example. Um, then a basis for uh, curbing corporate control would be um, a really effective um, lobby transparency and lobby control, basically, because we know that those companies have so much lobby power, as I was explaining um, uh, regarding the example of, of the German um, pesticide export ban. Um, then I guess also looking at the, considering the African continent, we definitely need to limit large-scale public-private partnerships. Um, and I'm also thinking, when I'm saying this, I'm also thinking of the UN um, organization, the Food and Agricultural Organization, FAO, um, which launched uh, under the Chinese presidency, uh, which launched a large um, alliance uh, with CropLife, so the largest pesticide uh, pesticide trading companies. So I think this is, this is very problematic. Mm -hmm. And... Lastly, I would say uh, we should also look at competition law in order to be able to unbundle corporations um, that have simply become too large and too powerful. And then on the other hand, when we look at how to support agroecology, um, basically it's funding, 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 and we just need funding for agroecological research. And I want to stress that agroecological research is not mainly in laboratories it's like participatory yeah. um, or participative research together with farmers right um and we definitely need to shift subsidies um away from uh gm or hybrid seeds chemical fertilizers chemical pesticides to organic fertilizers and also to train um small-scale farmers or also larger farmers in agroecological methods i think this is key and we definitely have to invest in this in this transition um, and then also what is important in agroecology i find is really to support regional and local marketing and trade um, and initiatives like school feeding programs or the likes um, that would um, offer organic produce from the region and you would have like long-term contracts with farmers from the region. I think those examples, we have those examples like how to 
do upscaling of agroecology. We had those examples from Brazil, for example. And as I said before, we definitely have to lift people out of poverty and fight inequalities. I think this is key. Um, but lastly, um, maybe just to be to be sure not to be misunderstood, I had this very, very interesting um, experience when I was in Jordan this summer. Um, like our colleagues from, from the Ramallah office organized a wonderful summer school on agroecology for the MENA region. Um, mm. And I was basically saying the same things there, but I got the impression that, of course, it makes such a difference. Like, if you say we want to curb corporate control and for this curbing control, uh, corporate control, we need more regulation and we need a strong state. Um, I understood that this depends a lot on the context. So if you don't yeah. have a strong or if you don't have a democratic state, of course, this debate is very, very different. And so I guess coming from... Um, still a functioning democracy, I would say, in Germany. <laughs> Luckily, we don't know how this will change. Um, yeah. And having those large, large companies like Bayer and BSF um, in Germany, I think we in Germany definitely have the obligation uh, of this watchdog function, basically, to really mm -hmm. see what are our companies um, doing. Uh, but I totally understand that an other contexts and other regions, um, it's hard to say we need a strong state to fight those companies. I can definitely understand that like going more into pushing for these alternatives also from like a grassroots perspective is totally legitimate. So just to, to be understood that this is not like a, a universal thing. Thank you so much, Lena, for joining us. I really hope our listeners find the conversation insightful as I have found as I have found it very insightful and very interesting. And yeah, I really also like what you've said at the end on the on how agroecology and how basically on how support of agroecology looks like and the need of upscaling agroecology. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Asante Shukrani. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. No, it's wonderful. Thanks so much. It was a very interesting conversation. Very good questions. Thank you. And thank you so much for making the time to join us. We really appreciate it, Lena. Thank you, Feli. Asante sana. 